to the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer or on the Montag Manufacturing website. Rick Clark says his family used to destroy their soil every season as they implemented their conventional corn-soybean rotation in Williamsport, Indiana. But seeing the soil wash away made Rick realize he needed to make a change. Now, many years later, Rick calls his approach regenerative organic stewardship with no tillage, and the cover crops he uses on every acre play a major role in the system. For this episode of the Cover Crop Strategies podcast, contributing editor Martha Mintz chats with Rick about how he integrates cover crops in a seven-way crop rotation, how nutrients are cycling in his system, why he says weeds aren't always bad, and more. Today we have with us Rick Clark. Rick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Martha. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm good. Rick, you are a fifth-generation Indiana farmer, uh, a longtime no-tiller, a user of cover crops. You know, you've you've kind of gone so far beyond and and are really a regenerative farmer. You know, there's so much to say about what you do, so I'm going to let you do the talking there. Why don't you just give me a little bit of your farming history and where you started and, and what shifted you and sent you down on this wild path that you're on today? Sure. Um... Well, we have to go back a long time, but uh, my my family was some of the worst uh, destructors of the soil in the county. Um, we tilled tilled deep, tilled till it was black. Uh, if it wasn't black, then you did it again. So uh, after coming out of that kind of a of a training, let's call it, the first thing is is to be able to say to yourself, okay, we've got to try something different here. And typically what happens here, Martha, is cover crops are introduced onto a person's farm usually because of looking at a defensive mechanism. In other words, um, erosion was our, was our nemesis here. So we, we were having erosion that was out of control. I looked at the cover crops as a defensive mechanism to slow that erosion down, which they, it did. And then as you go deeper into this journey, you find out that these cover crops become an absolute offensive juggernaut. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, yeah, the journey has gone from mass destruction of soil to now we are organic with no tillage, 100% cover crop, 100% no-till. So, uh, it's been quite a journey, but but I'll tell you, I, I I wouldn't have it any other way. I really like where we're sitting. Great. Now, a, a lot of times when people hear the words organic or regenerative, you know, they're thinking of of quite quite small um, quite small farms. Um, would you mind telling us just a little bit about um, what all your operation encompasses um, and and what all crops you're you're growing? Sure. Right now, we, we have a seven-crop rotation, and this is not in any particular order. It's corn, soybeans, wheat, alfalfa, uh, yellow peas, uh, milo, and cattle. And then I have uh, a plus one that I call it is regen. And regen is when you take a, actually take an acre out of production 
and you give it a massive cool season cocktail to start the, the season off with, then you come behind with the warm season cocktail, and that warm season cocktail may have some of the beginnings of your cocktail you need for the next cash crop, and if if you need to augment that, then we'll come back with a third pass, and we will then uh, put the species in that we want for the, the cash crop for the following year. You know, we're farming right now uh, approximately around 7,000 acres, so we have to think about things on scale, and, um, you know, I'm deeply concerned about building soil health, and I'm deeply concerned about building human health. So when you think about farming in those two methods, tillage has to stop. It just simply Mm -hmm. has to stop because the, the destruction we're doing to the soil and the microbial biome is just too much uh, of a shock for the system. So that's why, you know, a lot of people say I'm nuts, I'm crazy, why would you try <laughs> to do this? Uh, but, but Martha, this is where I want to be. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that this is the end-all, be-all. This is just where I want to be with our farm. This is where everyone on the farm, all the team members, all the family members, that's where they want to be. So it's about that that human health, soil health aspect, how they're they're intertwined. Mm-hmm. So now, I mean, when you came back to the farm, whenever you came back to the farm, I'm assuming you know when you came in, it was it was a pretty maybe just like soybean and corn, and and to where you are now is crazy complex. I guess what were kind of your first steps? Did cover crops come first? Did no-till come first? Like how did you progress? Yeah, no-till came first, and and it was no-till soybeans. And I would highly recommend that anyone starting down this journey, you you no-till beans first, and then you start with cereal rye with the soybeans. Because no-till corn in itself is difficult, but corn does not like compaction. And Mm -hmm. no matter how good of a job we all do, we've got compaction. So I feel like you need to be into this at least a couple years. So my thought process on this would be something like start with soybeans and then maybe go into a cereal grain that next year and that cereal grain comes off in midsummer and do not double crop another crop behind that cereal grain and then put a warm season cocktail out and then put your final cocktail out and get ready then to go to corn that following year. So you've given almost three years of building a little bit of soil health and trying to minimize or mitigate compaction a little bit before we go into this this uh, corn uh, no-tilling corn, um, and then you know once you now are in this in this system, you you just you can't get enough, and you're researching and you're going to conferences and you're hearing people talk and and you hear the same things repeated a lot of the times. You know, you've got to add diversity. You've got to get cash crop rotations. So you start thinking about these things. And and here's the other important thing about this, Martha, is we had to stop thinking about the market that's only 15 minutes in your back door. That that, that market's still there. But if you want to raise organic soybeans, they're probably going to get shipped two or three hours away from where your your home location is. So you have to start to accept that. And, for example, we ship beans all the way into Minneapolis, Minnesota now, so about eight hours one way. Oh, wow. Uh, 
Corn's being shipped um, an hour and a half one way, and we're working on uh, figuring figuring out how to ship Milo down into Texas. So that's that's where this thing all goes. It becomes more of a regional um, systematic approach than just a, an approach out your back door. Well, and speaking of of where people should start, you know, that's we should also mention that's something else you do. You have a consulting business as well. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me a little bit about about what that's called and and what you specifically focus on consulting. Yeah, it's it's called Farm Green. You can get more information about this at our website, uh, www.farmgreen.land. And what this is is a it's a consulting uh, approach that will take and help, you know, we're going to apply all of the principles of soil health, and I think there's six of them, and we're going to apply all six of those principles, and we're going to help the farmer get to the position where they want to get to. Some some folks just want to get to starting cover crops and maintaining three or four species, and that's all the complexity or diversity they want, and that's fine. Then they mm-hmm. may be done with this in a couple of years. We show them how to get to there then they're on their own. Boom. That's one way. Maybe another way is someone that wants to wants to truly minimize synthetic inputs or just inputs in general, and maybe their goal is a 50% reduction of inputs while still maintaining uh, adequate yields, if not same or better than they had before they started this approach. That would be like a second tier. Then a third tier would be someone who wants to go pretty much all the way and leave the synthetic inputs behind, learn how to build soil health, build human health, and farm for the future with with zero inputs. Well, it's not zero inputs. I mean, we still got to plant corn or beans, but pretty much zero inputs of synthetic fertilizers or synthetic chemistry. So uh, that's kind of the, the... that's it in a nutshell, but it's it's just, a, I mean, we don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. If they say they do, you need to find somebody else because this <laughs> changes by the minute. So oh, yeah. if I have proclaimed to, to say in public I have the answers, I was wrong. I do not. But the point is I truly believe that that what we're trying to do here is gaining traction. I mean, we see we see articles in magazines. We, we we get folks like you, Martha, that are now starting podcasts to continue to spread the word. I mean, this is very, very important that we keep this information in front of everyone at all times. You know, we may not have all the answers, but you certainly have, have made some forward progress. Uh, yeah. I think in, in researching um, about what all you've done, I think what's as interesting as what you do use is what you don't use. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what inputs you've been able to reduce or completely eliminate through your diversity um, in crops and cover crops? Right. Yeah. And that, and that that in itself is a journey of its own. We've been no-tilling soybeans for about 17 years and corn for about 14 years. So when you start to think back on that and then you come forward in time, it takes about six or seven years, in my opinion, to really start to see that, that soil change for, for the benefit of starting to reduce synthetic inputs. Now, 
let me let me rephrase this. I don't mean that it takes six or seven years to see the soil change. That's not what I meant, because it, it can change within a season of you mm-hmm. implementing these soil health principles. What I mean is to get to the point to where we can start to reduce inputs, it's a six or seven year journey. Here's how we started. And no offense to my agronomist, uh, he <laughs> came with the normal recommendation. And I said, I'll tell you what, we're going to cut those by 25% and let's see what happens. So we did it, we did it by 25% for two years, saw no change in fertility. So then we went to 50% for two years, saw no change in fertility. So we continued to decrease. We got to 60% reduction, and I think we got maybe to 70%. And then I said, you know what? I'm done. We're not <laughs> we're not putting on P or K anymore, and let's monitor our, our soil test, and let's see what's happening. And that's what we're doing, and nothing's crashing. Everything is staying the same, if not rising in some instances. We have eliminated synthetic nitrogen. Uh, this will be the third year now that we're no longer using nitrogen. We are growing the nitrogen we need, and we are, are educating ourselves uh, more and more on the microbial biome, and we are now starting to uh, what I call turn on certain sectors of the biome that, for example, fix nitrogen. There's a group of microbes that will fix enough nitrogen in the ground that you can raise corn with zero synthetic inputs. So we just have to get those stimulants into the profile to turn those groups on, and then we can truly start to minimize, if not eliminate, all of these inputs. So We've not, we've not put any P or K down for eight years, and we've not put any synthetic N down for three years. So I feel very proud about that. And, and probably the most thing I feel, well, there's two things I, I really feel proud about that is the fact that we're not dependent on these synthetic inputs. So when you get these extremely volatile situations that are occurring around the world, we tend to be a little bit buffered from that. And that's a good thing because, believe me, I got 50 other things to worry about. Right. And then the second thing that I really like about this is this human health aspect. By eliminating these caustic chemicals and herbicides and, and pyrethroids, insecticides and fungicides, we are starting to, to make ourselves more healthy by not being exposed to those. And believe me. I've been exposed to them my whole life, and I, I'm so thankful that that my children who are now coming on board have, have very – I'm not sure uh, my youngest daughter, Rachel, has ever been around chemicals at all, and that is a good thing. So that that, is that's a good thing. What, yeah, and I'm really trying to, to, to focus in on this human health, soil health aspect. Yeah, well, it all goes hand in hand. You know, you save the expense, you save, you save the exposure, you, you know, it's, uh, it's good all the way across the board. So, you know, there are a lot of things that you don't use, but, you know, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, what you do need to produce is, is biomass. You can't be growing a, a puny little cover crop out there. You, you need biomass. Talk to me a little bit about what you consider success in a cover crop stand and how you quantify that. Sure. Let's go back, uh, Martha. I want to go back a little bit in time 
when we were still using chemistry, okay? That's how I want okay. to start this conversation. You do not realize, the farmer does not realize how important planting date and amount that you plant of a cover crop in the fall is important until you start to remove chemistry. So, for example, okay. we would we were in this in this mode years back where we were planting cover crops, say seventy pounds of cereal rye, uh, going to be planted in the fall ahead of a soybean crop next spring, with all the intentions of using chemistry to either a terminate that cereal rye or b help mitigate weed pressure. Okay. That works great. I, I highly recommend that anyone should be able to farm that way. It's fairly easy. It's fairly simple. And you still have that easy button of chemistry to bail you out if a, if a problem occurs. Which okay, can be very comforting. <laughs> yes, that's very comforting. You're exactly right. Let's move forward now in time where I've taken all that chemistry away. When you do this, it is imperative that the cover crop is planted as early as possible in the spring and that you are using amounts that will give you biomass amounts upwards of 10,000 pounds of dry matter biomass. 10,000 pounds, that's a lot. So for example, Martha, if we were gonna roll down six foot tall cereal rye with approximately 10 to 12,000 pounds of dry matter biomass, when we were done rolling that down with the crimper, it would be about 9 to 10 inches deep. Holy so that's cow. how thick this is over the top of the soil profile. So biomass is, is critical in many ways here, and let's talk about them. Number one, weed suppression, okay? We've got to, that's the world I live in now. So we have to suppress weeds with this biomass, this cover crop that we're growing. Okay, that's that's number one. And I have a rule here. I have a 70-30 rule. The okay. 70%, 70% of the weed suppression is coming from that cover crop cocktail that you planted and mechanically terminated. And 30% of the weed suppression is coming from the cash crop canopy. So it's very important that we get these cash crops growing up through these cover crops. Let that 70-30 rule hold until we can get the canopy, and then the, the canopy of the, the cash crop will go ahead and suppress the weeds for you. So that's number one. Number two here is this biomass is armoring the soil. And when we armor the soil, we're doing many things here. Let's think about rain events. Uh, typically, on a rainstorm, the raindrops are traveling at about 30 miles an hour as they come down and, and absolutely smash into the, the soil on the earth at 30 miles an hour. And they are creating compaction. And not only are they creating compaction, but those raindrops are also creating small aggregates of soil that are now easily and readily, readily available to move with this water event and create erosion. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not good. So the cover crop mat that you have is going to greatly reduce this compaction from the raindrops because the rain is hitting this, this layer, this mat, this thatch, whatever you want to call it, 
and then dispersing down through that profile. Much, much, much less of a violent reaction to the surface of the soil. And then the last thing that I want to talk about um, biomass is the the uh, the limit of evaporation. So we are working hard to build soil health, build aggregate stability, uh, increase water infiltration rates, increase water holding capacity, increase organic matter. All of these things help us fill the profile with moisture and hold that moisture in the profile. But if you do not have your profile covered with an armor, then you get these 95-degree days out when your cash crop has not canopied yet and the moisture is quickly evaporated into the atmosphere. And that's not good because when we get to the dog days of summer, we need that precious moisture in the profile to then continue to feed our cash crop when it hasn't rained for three weeks. Right. So beyond the armoring of the soil, you know, which is its, its first job, eventually all of that, that biomass is going to go into the soil. Sure. Is, is that worth noting or, or measuring? Oh, yeah. Um, so so talk, talk to me about how you, um, how you measure um, or understand what that biomass is, is giving you. Right. And, and yet that's a great point, Martha. And this is probably the most important thing that I left out was feeding the microbes. By putting this biomass down, we are feeding the microbes. The microbes now are doing their job. They, they are transforming this material into uh, an organic state of, of a nutrient or a mineral that now that cash crop can get to. So, for example, when we're rolling down legume cocktails that maybe have a nitrogen to, uh, or a carbon to nitrogen ratio of, say, 15 to 1, um, that is going to get eaten up very quickly by the microbes because that is a, a microbe likes to live in about a 12 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio world. So we give them a 15 to 1, and they are going to quickly uh, eat that up. So... We are feeding those microbes. Uh, we are letting them thrive and letting this, this engine uh, run at peak performance. So again, let's, let's go back to tillage. I, I just am against tillage all the way because if you till, you are destroying these microbial biomes. For example, the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi have to be present because they are the communication backbone of this whole network. There's not going to be a transaction of a nutrient or a mineral unless it goes through that fungi, that arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So if we are tilling the soil, we are damaging and destroying that, that system to where all it's doing is repairing itself. So once you get beyond tillage, you get to where you are now laying down 12, 13,000 pounds of biomass. And by the way, Martha, to get to these kind of numbers, we have to let these cover crops grow far into their maturity. So planting corn on April the 10th is not going to happen anymore. We now plant all of our corn after Mother's Day. It's typically after May 20th. And oh, wow soybeans at the end of April, 1st of May, because we are wanting to maximize what these cover crops are doing for us. 
not only the biomass, but all of the nutrients that they are either A, sequestering, or B, fixing through nodulation. So it's very important that we let these cover crops now grow into maturity before we terminate. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor. Montec Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montec's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer or on the Montag Manufacturing website. And now, back to the podcast. Have you um, tested like dry matter and, and seen how the nutrient levels in your cover crops change based sure. on when they're terminated or, or have you looked at that at all? Oh, yeah. We are now testing cereal rye. I've changed this test a couple of times. Uh, we plant cereal rye in the fall, and what we're up to now, we start to fall at 130 pounds, and it, you want to plant a single variety. I don't much care what variety you plant, but make sure it's a single variety because you want it all to mature at the same time next year. But we plant Elbon. So we start with 130 pounds to the acre of Elbon cereal rye. It'll grow in the fall. It'll go into dormancy. It'll come out of dormancy next spring. And we start sampling on every Monday. And what you do is you go out and you, you measure out a two-foot by two-foot square, and you clip everything that's in that square at the ground level. You put it in a bag, and you send it to your lab. And the lab will send you back a feed analysis of that sample, and it will tell you how many nutrients are in that above-ground material. For example, and I, I, I'm not going to get these numbers exact, but uh, from I'm going to try to pull this out of my memory, a 12-inch rye plant, uh, we have seen 84 pounds of N, uh, 30 or 40 pounds of P, and uh, 60 or 70 pounds of K in that 12-inch plant. And up to a 28-inch tall plant, we've seen upwards of 130 pounds of N, um, uh, maybe 80 pounds of P, and 200 pounds of K. So if you're going to plant soybeans into that uh, cover crop, this is why you no longer need any more P or K. We are pulling these nutrients from deep within the profile back to the surface, regenerating, recycling, whatever the word you want to use is, and we are now making these uh, nutrients available for the cash crop. Now, they're not all available at once here at the beginning, but once the microbes start their process, uh, an abundance of these uh, nutrients will be available in a matter of short time, like three to four weeks. And now you've got the fuel that that crop needs to go on and produce a viable seed and give you yield at the end of the day. Same thing with uh, with legume packages. Uh, Martha, we have seen legume packages, if you let them go to maturity, and I'm talking uh, where I'm at in west central Indiana, June the 4th to June the 8th, we can get upwards of 260 pounds of nitrogen fixed in just the above ground material. 
this is huge. So this is where I ask every farmer to just step out of your comfort zone just a little <laughs> bit and go with me here. And in today's market, a pound of in is probably a dollar a unit of in, if not higher. So we're going to save $50 an acre on just your in application. Mm-hmm. Now, this cocktail is going to cost about 25 So we're already $25 ahead on the cost of the cocktail, plus we're bringing in all of the value of those other nutrients, the, the P, the K, the boron, the manganese, the sulfur, all of these other things that we haven't even talked about yet are coming on for that same $25. So mm-hmm. it's an absolute no-brainer to be implementing some of these practices to at least some kind of a degree on your operation. So when you are doing those tests, your goal to to determine when the best time to terminate it is, or is your goal to evaluate it and say, this is what I have available? Probably not since you're not using most of that stuff, but, but what what value is it to you to continue testing the biomass at the different levels on your farm? Or are you done with that now that you that you kind no, of No. No, this Martha, this is kind of my fail safe uh way to sleep at night because what we're gonna do for this cereal rye is we're gonna go out on that first warm Monday when it's coming out of dormancy and we're gonna take a sample. And we're gonna take a sample every Monday all the way till we harvest that cash crop. Because I want to see, are we still pulling nutrients to the surface and recycling them through sequestration? And when are those nutrients truly available at a level that is enough to feed that cash crop? That's kind of my secondary way of taking a soil test and Mm -hmm. seeing what is there in the soil. And this is kind of nature's way of taking this test because... I no longer do the traditional soil testing methods because I've never liked them anyway. I don't like how they do the testing. They use caustic acids. Uh, It's just a lot of things that are looking at as if the soil was dead. I'm trying to look at as if the soil is alive and let's do this testing. And also, I think, Martha, if, if we can look at trends of when this occurs, we can then match up our planning dates to be at peak performance of when those nutrients are available. So I mm-hmm. think there's many reasons why we do this. So is it beneficial, you know, does, should somebody else on an individual farm, is it important for them to do similar testing or can we look at your testing and just say, we're, we're okay. You know, we can, we can rely on what Rick says. No, I think it's some of both, Martha. I think you can look at what Rick's saying, and that gives you the idea to take that home and do it on your farm. But you have to do this testing on your farm. You've got to do the trials on your farm. You have to do all of this because this, there is no, there is no cookie cutter. One, one prescription works for everybody. This is a, a systematic approach that is then carried out on your farm, your region of the world, your your own systematic approach that you become comfortable with. I mean, you may reach a point where you just say, you know what, I great that Rick can do that, but I, I cannot get to total elimination here. I'm not seeing it in the numbers. 
that's fine. Mm-hmm. Then maximize, you know, push it, push it to 70% reduction and then use 30% augmentation. But no, you make a very good point. Uh, I'm just trying to give out ideas to stimulate thinking process that people can go home and do these things on their farm. Sure. Now, you know, you talked about cereal rye individually, and then you talked about, you know, a legume mix. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any anything interesting as you tested that biomass um, when things were in mixes or, or how different things, uh, inter- how the different species interact with each other? Yeah. Have there been any, any surprises or, or cool things you learned uh, in your testing? Now, that's another good question. You've got all kinds of good questions for me today. Yeah, I'll tell you. Now, we've got to be careful here what I'm getting ready to talk about because this is where I can get taken out of context a little bit. Okay. I can no longer use a, a lot of the perennial species because I cannot terminate them, okay? But right. if you are still using chemistry, then by all means incorporate perennials into these diverse cocktails that we're planting because, Martha, again, you bring up an excellent point. When you can introduce uh, rape or canola or chicory or uh, maybe Italian ryegrass or something, you can now start to have different types of root systems in this cocktail. Those, uh, maybe not the Italian ryegrass, but the chicory and the uh, rape or canola are going to go down deep with roots and they're going to pull, especially the chicory, they're going to pull nutrients that are four and five feet deep compared to your grasses that are going to stay more at the surface with all those hairy fibrous roots. But it is absolutely amazing when you take some of those deep tap roots out of a cocktail and only look at a fibrous root system, you're going to see a lot less different or you're going to see a lot different numbers. And typically what you're going to find are numbers that are less with the fibrous root systems than you will with those deep tap systems. And I also want to go one more, another way with this. Let's talk weeds now. Okay. You know, everybody says weeds are no good. You can't, you can't have weeds. Well, I agree to some, to some uh, amount of weeds that are out there, to some pressure. Obviously, if you have a 100% weed stand and you are, uh, hampering your your yield of your cash crop. That's not good. But I, I do these crazy things, and I thought, you know, let's go out and let's pull uh, a pigweed and let's pull um, a mare's tail and, and, and all these weeds that we have, and let's do the same test on those weeds that we would do on a, on a cover crop. And, Martha, you would be shocked at the amount of nutrients that are in the weeds that are being pulled because most weeds that we have to deal with are tap-rooted deep weeds and like right. lamb's quarter, and they are bringing tremendous amount of nutrients back to the surface. So, yes, weeds are not good, but you don't have to worry if you have a few weeds because they are they are doing you some good. And if you are a livestock person weeds at the right time have a tremendous amount of nutrient density for that that cow or that 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 animal to feed for example water hemp if you were to make baleage or haylage out of water hemp at the correct time you would be shocked at the nutritional value that's in that forage 
or that, that leaf part of that structure above ground. Now, am I promoting that? No. But what I'm saying is a few weeds here and there are not a bad thing. Well, maybe we'll have to start raising some weeds as a monoculture. <laughs> yeah. Just, just I, wish, I wish we had a target because foxtail is my problem right now, and I uh, think we're going to work through it, but foxtail is the biggest problem on the farm right now. But I, I think I got some answers for that, and, and we'll try to do – I'll let you – next time we talk, I'll maybe have some, some better clarity on that. Sure. Well, I we are running out of time to a certain extent here, but I did want to quickly ask, you know, you, you talk a lot about producing a lot of biomass, but then I also know you have livestock uh, in your operation as well. And I know we could probably talk for another 45 minutes about that. But is there concern with livestock using too much of your biomass in your system? Yeah, that's, that's another good thought. It's, it becomes part of your rotation. So, Typically, what we're doing here on our farm is if there's an animal grazing on a forage package, then that field will not be planted to a cash crop until the following year. So we are still going to follow the rules that the grazers have laid out, you know, 50% reduction of the above-ground material and so on and so on. We're still going to follow those rules. And then we're going to graze the animal across, so I like to look at that as sometimes, A, I talked earlier about the regen, where you take that acre out of production. Well, sometimes if you have that infrastructure built, so in other words, you've got the fence built and you have a water supply, then let's let the cattle also graze, and they're going to help build soil health and get them in, out, and across that acre, back out, so we can plant the warm season cocktail and get ready for next year's crop. So typically when we're grazing, we are not going to plant a cash crop in that same year. Now there are folks, especially out west on wheat, that do that all the time. They'll, they'll graze wheat in the early spring, pull them off, and then raise a wheat crop. That's great. You've got to have the right kind of soil to do that. We don't have that kind of soil. If we had cattle on our wheat in the spring, it would be a mud mess. There would be compaction. They would actually probably destroy the wheat. They'd probably hurt yield. Uh, we do not have the right kind of soil to do that. So again, context. That's one of yep. the principles of soil health. Where are you located in the world and what can you get away with and how can you do it? So yes, we have cattle. I love cattle. I love the way they build soil health. If you want to build soil health the quickest way and the most efficient way, you need cattle. It's not for everybody. We do not raise a cash crop in the same year that we uh, rotationally graze. Except for beef. Right, except for that beef because <laughs> they are gaining and they are building nutrient density and then they will go to town and become hamburger and steaks one day, yes. I think the, the one other piece of the puzzle that we really need to lock in here uh, before we go is, you know, you talk about 10,000 pounds of biomass and planting into an 8-inch, um, you know, mat of cereal, right. but you also talk about not having chemical in your organic operation, and then you also talk about planting green. How are you doing this? Like, do you have a specific setup on your planter to be able to plant into this? How are you terminating it if you're planting into it green? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what what's that part of the puzzle? Sure. Well, let's talk soybeans and cereal rye. 
again, I cannot stress enough. If you get, and again, context, where are you? When is your freeze date? Back up 45 days from your freeze date. Can you plant your cover crop in that window? If you say yes, then I want you to plant cereal rye. I want you to plant oats with that. I want you to plant sunflower, sorghum sudan, sun hemp, cow peas, radish, turnips. All of these things I just mentioned will all winter kill. And then all you're left with, except the rye, then all you're left with is that cereal rye next spring. Okay. Now, what we're doing is we're planting soybeans into the cereal rye green at boot stage. So that's not a particular date. It's just a, it's a growth stage of the cereal rye. Now, in the region where I'm at, and I'll be a little bit more specific, I am exactly in line with the Iowa-Missouri border. So all of Iowa is north of me. All of Missouri is south of me. Come right across the state of Illinois three miles into Indiana, and that's where we are. Okay. When you do this, we're planting green soybeans into the rye at boot stage, which for us is typically April 25th to May 5th. So now we're going to let those beans grow, and they're going to get to about V2 growth stage, and then on or somewhere around June the 1st, this rye is going to reach anthesis. Again, it's not a date. It's a growth stage. It's dropping pollen, and that's when the lignin is the highest, and this is when we can terminate mechanically with a roller crimper. And we are now rolling the rye and the V2 growth stage beans down together all at the same time, rolling everything down. So we've now created this mat and this mulch for the beans to grow up through because they're already at V2. You're not going to hurt these beans. They're going to kind of lay over and stand right back up. So we've already taken a care of this eight inches of mat that I was talking about because the beans are going to wiggle right through this. They got the sunlight, and away we go. So that's soybeans. Corn, we are growing the nitrogen we need with these legume packages, and we have to let these legume packages grow and, and really maximize their nitrogen-fixing capabilities. So somewhere around May 25th to June the 1st, we are going to pull in with our planter. And by the way, we have nothing special on our planter. There are, there's not a no-till coulter. There is not any row cleaners. It's just a double-disc opener and a closing system. That's it. And we will then pull in to this knee-high uh, legume package and no-till plant corn. And then we will come back typically three to four days and roll this down. So that's how we achieve planting green and then terminating. We very rarely do we terminate before we plant. It's almost always after we plant. Well, that sounds terrifying to a lot of people, I'm sure. I've noted that, uh, you know, you kind of have a, a mantra that you live by, um, that if you're not comfortable with what you're doing, then you're not trying hard enough to change. Um, I, I feel like a lot of the things you've talked about are, are things that might be uncomfortable for people, um, but, but you've obviously worked through that. But what yeah. I really want to know in closing here is what are you doing right now that makes you uncomfortable? 
Oh boy, that's a good one. I I sleep very well at night. I don't I don't <laughs> worry about too many things. And and what good does it do? Because you got to be sharp for tomorrow. So sitting up at night worrying doesn't do you any good. What energizes me right now? I'll tell you what energizes me right now is epigenetics and finding microbial stimulants that are inherent within my region to now introduce to the system to turn certain microbes on. That's what I'm going to dedicate most of my time remaining here to is epigenetics and finding the microbes, the stimulants, whatever you want to call them, that are inherent with in nature. So in other words, go out into that woods that's in my back door and collect the leaves from that woods and let them ferment down and create this this tea and then take that tea out and start to replicate that into the system and see if we can't turn on certain sectors of this microbial biome. And then epigenetics, you can look that word up to find the definition, but in a nutshell, what we're starting to do now is we've gone back in time and we've we've found seeds that are off patent. This is very important here. We cannot do this to seeds that are still under patent because you're breaking the law. So we went back 35 years and we got soybean seeds from 10 varieties and we grew them out and we are now, we started with just a handful of seeds and then you grow those out, you do it by hand, then you harvest those and now you've got maybe 40 pounds, then you plant 40 pounds and now hopefully you have 2,000 pounds and now you're ready to go bigger scale on your farm. So the theory here is, we are no longer going to buy soybean seed. We are going to plant seeds that have, from genetics that have never been tampered with, uh, you know, for a GMO, and we are going to allow these genetics to adapt to our system. We're doing the same thing with corn. We just started doing corn, and we went back 85 years for corn genetics. We're doing the same thing with cover crop seed. We're going to start saving all of our own seed. We're no longer going to introduce any more genetics. And we're also doing this with our, our livestock herds. We have the group of animals that we want based on our criteria, our criteria, and we will hopefully no longer add any outside sources of genetics. We're trying to do this through Mother Nature with epigenetics. That's what really excites me right now. Well, it sounds like we're going to have a lot more interesting things to talk about in the future, Rick. Um, but I think that'll do it for today. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, hopefully some folks get out there and get uncomfortable themselves. Well, thank you, Martha. This has been a pleasure and keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks to Williamsport, Indiana no-tiller Rick Clark for that conversation about transitioning from soil destruction to soil regeneration with cover crops. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer or on the Montag manufacturing website. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com. <laughs>